Hi, everyone. This is Jim McCarty welcoming you to the LL Research Podcast in the Now, episode number 32. LL Research is a nonprofit organization dedicated to freely sharing spiritually oriented information and fostering community. And towards this end has two websites the archive website, llresearch.org, and the community website, bringforth.org. During each episode, those of us at LL Research form a panel to consider questions from spiritual seekers. Our panel consists of Gary Beam, Director of LL Research, and Austin Bridges, Assistant Director of LL Research, along with myself, husband to the late Carla L. Rucker, scribe for the Raw Contact, and President of LL Research. Each of us, a devoted seeker and student of the Law of One. We will be discussing questions that are sent to us from spiritual seekers around the globe. Our replies to these questions are not final or authoritative. Instead, they are generally subjective interpretations stemming from our own studies and life experiences. We intend this podcast to be a platform of discussion as we consider questions that often challenge us to articulate our own perspective. We always ask each who listens to exercise his own discernment and listen for her own resonance in determining what is true. If you would like to submit a question for this show, please do so. Our humble podcast relies on your questions. You may either send an email to contact at llresearch.org or go to www.llresearch.org forward slash podcast for further instructions. Again, I'm Jim McCarty, and we're embarking on a new episode of LL Research's weekly podcast, In the Now. Is everybody here and ready to go? I indeed am. Yes, I am. Okay, folks, we are starting with somewhat of an offbeat question. It's from Amari Paul via Bring Forth. Can you apply metaphysics in the law of one to basketball? I do not know if you've ever played, but there is such a passion I have. It's like you spill your heart into this beautiful work of art. I would like to know if it is possible to be of service to others in a basketball game, or at least be able to play efficiently with your green ray open. I know the game can probably be a mixture of service to others and service to self, but what I really want to know is what advantage would you have in having an open heart and then applying the meta and quantum physics and the law of one in playing basketball? I think in basketball, there's probably a lot of usage into the rays that are usually used in service to self-entities. Thank you so much. I'm excited if you could answer this question. I also want to know what growth you can bring out of this so that you may apply the examination to a wider range of audience. Gary, how about some round ball advice in metaphysics for us? Huh, well, probably there's one of three of us that's most qualified to speak on this particular topic as two out of three of us um, aren't sports people, you might say. Um, sports, to me, and I, I don't mean to minimize Amari Paul's question whatsoever, but I will start with a disclaimer and say that sports, to me, kind of um, sound like what I'm about to read to you in this four-panel comic. So in the <laughs> upper left panel of the comic, there's, there's two uh, characters here. There's an interviewer and there's a kind of a stick figure sports player. player. And the interviewer says, you were sportsing really hard out there. A lot of sports <laughs> happened. Why do you think you lost? The, the football player says, we sportsed our best and scored points, but the other team was sportsing too, and they scored even more points. What's your strategy for the next match? We need to stop the other team from scoring points while we ourselves score many points. <laughs> now back to the studio for 10 hours of sports analysis. And then the football player concludes by saying, my income is higher than most countries. <laughs> so um, now to your good question, Amari Paul. Uh, I, w I would think that uh, a polarity of consciousness in competitive sports is surely parallel to polarity of consciousness in other arenas of life. 
Uh, I would begin examining this question by um, asking of the sports player, uh, do you treat other players, regardless of whose team they are on, with respect? Do you see the creator in them? Do you recognize your fundamental and underlying equality with those on and off the court? Or do you seek to dominate or humiliate your opponents? Do you approach the game with a sense of virtue and ethics in terms of playing fairly and abstaining from cheating, doping, abusing your position, etc.? Or do you play to win whatever the means necessary? Do you give gratitude to your ability to play? Or do you, and do you give your best effort for the love of the game? Or do you play hard for the fame, the money, the increased opportunities for sex, etc.? Do you operate as a team member attempting to uplift and support your team or even your city? Or are you driven by what we some call ego and seek only your own glory? Uh, sports at the professional level involves incredible skill and years of discipline and training and uh, high intelligence for the activity. Uh, wanting to excel, to win against an opponent in the context of a game, uh, I don't see this as inherently service to self. Um, so much depends upon the attitude and orientation of the one playing. Uh, just like in other areas of life, the same activity could be used to polarize one's consciousness in either direction. Ultimately, uh, service to others is compatible with competitive sports, um, I believe. But genuine spirit, genuine, but I'm sorry, being genuinely spiritual, however, may be challenging in sports. Um, upon the positive path of spiritual evolution, one seeks not to become attached to outcome, but to give one's best and to allow the cards to fall where they may. In sports, uh, absolutely everything is hinged upon the outcome of a game or a season or a tournament or a performance, uh, most especially the fans' blood pressure and mental well-being. Uh, to say, I'm, I'm going to try my best, but I'm not too concerned about whether I win or lose uh, is not a recipe for success in sports. Um, that's my thoughts, Amari Paul. Back to you, Jim. Well, Austin, what have you got to say about the round ball competition versus cooperation? Well, I am not the one of the three that Gary is referencing. Oh, this. I thought you were. <laughs> <laughs> no. I've always said that I'm just missing the part of my brain that allows me to appreciate sports in the same way that a lot of our culture does. But uh, I do think that there is a similar correlation to something that I do have experience with, and that is competitive multiplayer video games. It's not as... Uh, front and center in our culture as sports are, but I do think that they engage a similar competitive spirit. Uh, while sports engages people in a much more physical way, I think that the mentality behind the two are very similar. It's all about engaging a particular skill or power in order to outperform and or subdue another person or group of people. And I was really into competitive gaming at one point in my life. And I have to say that the type of rush that you get from this overpowering of somebody and beating an opponent of equal or greater skill when you have practiced and honed your own skill, it's unlike any other kind of rush that I've experienced. You can kind of uh, taste the power and kind of get high on it and you want more of it. So if I am right and that this rush of competitive power is similar between the two, I think that Amari Paul's comment 
uh, was uh, insightful when he said, I think that in basketball there's probably a lot of usage into the rays that are usually used in a service-to-self entity. And there's actually a Q&A where Ra talks very closely about this subject. In 34.12, Don is asking about positive individuals interacting with gadgets, toys, and inventions, and Ra responds... In this particular instance, we again concentrate for the most part in the orange and in the yellow energy centers. In a negative sense, many of the gadgets among your people, that is what you call your communication devices and other distractions such as the less competitive games, may be seen to have the distortion of keeping the mind-body-spirit complex unactivated so that the yellow and the orange ray activity is much weakened, thus carefully decreasing the possibility of eventual green ray activation. Others of your gadgets may be seen to be tools whereby the entity explores the capabilities of its physical or mental complexes in some few ca- and in some few cases the spiritual complex, thus activating the orange ray in what you call your team sports or in other gadgets such as your modes of transport. These may be seen to be ways of investigating the feelings of power, more especially power over others, or a group power over another group of other selves. So, when talking about having feelings of power over others, this seems to be pretty clearly a negative-leaning sort of power, but I don't think that necessarily means that in playing uh, any sort of competitive sport or video game that it is inherently negative and is not part of the positive path. And I may be taking the video game to sports correlation a little far, but Kuo once spoke about playing competitive games online, and what they said has helped me shape my own understanding of the nature of this type of competition in general, including sports. And this is from March 28, 2006. Kuo said, Many of your computer games, whether played by the self or played with others, involve a great deal of dramatic action in which the online characters are embattled. There is a good deal of destruction and mayhem that is a part of the game. It is necessary, in order to play the game, to move through the patterns of aggression, warfare, and the concept of winning over one's enemies. Games such as this have a mixed polarity in terms of their effect upon the people who play them. In one sense, there is something to be said for a person who is aware that, within the heart, she has many hostile and aggressive feelings which cannot in good conscience express in the normal course of everyday life. Such a seeker may consciously choose to play such an aggressive game in order to express the shadow side of the self in terms of negative emotions like anger, impatience, judgment, and resentment in a way that does not infringe upon anyone's free will. When played in a conscious way, where the time is dedicated to expressing such feelings in a non-harmful manner, such an entity may experience a psychological release from the opportunity and which has been taken to unload the harmful and toxic emotions and remove them from the interior emotional self system of the self. Um, uh, I think that the aggressive nature of games isn't necessarily the correlation to basketball, as uh, the game of basketball is not violent in the same way that video games can be violent. But Kuo talks about the concept of winning over one's enemies, which is exactly what I think when I think about basketball and other sports. It's all about winning over your opponents. 
And so Ra talks about these things being a way of investigating feelings of power. I think that an investigation of these things, especially when played out in such a safe and regulated outlet, such as sports or video games, can be a part of the path of the positive entity. If we were investigating these feelings of power over others through real violence or real warfare, then I do think the consequences on our polarity would be much greater. But as a society, we realize that these things are a part of human nature, but also not something that we should allow to run out of control and cause harm on other people uh, just to let them play out. It's something that needs to have an outlet to be explored, otherwise it would probably stay repressed and likely express itself in uh, much less healthy ways. Uh, and beyond that, well, I think that uh, many may grow beyond sports once the investigation of this expression of power is satisfied. Uh, like Gary was saying, I think there is still a potential for athletes to grow positively within a sport. A conscious recognition of the feelings of power over others can grow to maybe a more healthy, compassionate competition where there's a camaraderie between the two opponents. Two people competing against each other may see each other as less of an enemy and more as friends who are helping each other grow in their passion and helping them to express their feelings of power, not necessarily over others, but a power of inspiration that comes when you do something that you love. But I do think it can go the other direction as well. A person may be indulgent in the feeling of dominating others through sport and in their sport uh, successfully polarize negatively through this means. And perhaps this is more common as I think the tendency of having power over others isn't one that necessarily lends itself to positive polarization. And like Gary said, there is a lot that hinges on needing to win a game. You can't really let go of expectations in sports. Um, I don't think it's seen as a sportsmanlike attitude to just be like, I'm happy whether or not we win or lose. <laughs> uh, so I think that it might tend more towards a, a negative skew, but it's definitely a potential for both if you are conscious about it. And those are my thoughts. How do you feel, Jim? Well, um, I appreciate what you all had to say. It was some, uh, very thoughtful remarks that you all have made. Um, I think it was Vince Lombardi, the uh, pro football coach back in the uh, 60s and 70s at Green Bay, that said, uh, winning isn't everything, it is the only thing. <laughs> that gives you an idea of the uh, traditional view mm -hmm. of sports in this country and probably around the world. I think we've come some distance since then. Uh, when you watch a, a game now, even in college, especially I think it started in high school, after the game, both, both teams line up and uh, shake each other's hand and wish each other you know, a good game, maybe a little hug or something, a pat on the shoulder. And that's something that uh, didn't happen back in Vince's time. I'm sure he would not have appreciated that at all. But as far as um, making a basketball game uh, more law-of-one friendly, um, I think we would have to change it around a little bit. Um, most basketball games are played by the half. And I think we would need to go back to like the way the football games are played by the quarter. I had a couple ideas. One of them was at the end of each quarter, one person from each team would switch teams so that uh, the teams, as you went through the game, would begin to change. And there would not be the competition of one team against another team. And then I had another idea. I was thinking, well, let's just put everybody on one bench, uh, the, the, the two teams, 
And they're all uh, going to be going in and out on either team. So that what's really focused upon then would be the game itself and how well you play the game and the teamwork to see uh, where you got. And by the end of the game, uh, then there wouldn't really be a winner or a loser. There would be people who had played a game for the joy of the game. As uh, Amari Paul says, uh, the great beauty of the game. And there is a lot of beauty in, in basketball. I mean, uh, in any sport where there's movement, I mean, it's a type of a dance. And in basketball, there's all kinds of opportunities for doing some really great steps. So uh, that would be what we'd be focused on. It wouldn't be uh, which side scored the most points because you wouldn't know which side was there. There would be one side, you know, all this one. So I think that we would have to re remodel the game a little bit in order to make it a cooperative event. And I think that his last part of the question here, I also want to know what growth you can bring out of this so that you may apply the examination to a wider range of audience. I think the whole idea uh, of what I was talking about there is to try to make the game more cooperative. We live in a competitive society. Capitalism is supposed to be quite a competitive culture, although as we go further along into capitalism, we find that the, the, the big and the rich get bigger and richer and the small get run over. So that there's a really not that many competitors in a lot of different fields anymore. There's you know, the, the major ones and there's the minor ones that struggle along and try to make it. But the whole idea of uh, capitalism is to be competitive. If we had a more cooperative type of culture and a more cooperative type of mindset, I think... Uh, that all for one and one for all idea, I think it was the Three Musketeers, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> would probably be what we would want to focus on because if we're wanting to get the best possible effort out of everybody, everybody has to be able to receive a benefit from it. We can't cut people out just because they're not efficient or stronger or smarter or richer. Uh, everybody's got to be in. Uh, so um, in order to do that in our society, <laughs> Uh, we'll, we'll have to elect a socialist and, or or worse, you know, <laughs> a communist like Jesus, um, oh, no, where no. everybody shared what everybody had. And if you needed something, um, people provided it. And if they needed something, you helped provide it. So uh, I don't think our mindset in this culture just yet is ready for all of this, but I think that's the direction we'd have to go. You really have to change the mind if you want to change the game. But if you were able to change the game a little bit, you might help change the mind some. But the mind and the heart really have to be changed first. So, any other last thoughts on uh, basketball and the law of one? Um, I just like what you your uh, rearrangement of basketball. I like that idea and that it becomes more about the beauty of the game and less about the competition. But I'm imagining how all of my sports fan friends would react if they all of a sudden changed the rules of basketball to that. And I would imagine riots in <laughs> every street in the country. Um, it seems like the way that sports are set up right now, it's a strong appeal to a sort of tribal identity. Because um, sports fans, they don't really... like they. There are many who appreciate the beauty of the game, and like seeing the game played, but more than anything, they want to see their team win. Um, so I do think, like you're saying, the country is not ready for something like that. Our society is not ready for something like that. Uh, and we can't just force it through changing the rules of the game. Um, but it is an interesting idea. I liked it. Well, you know, your uh, last statement that made me think is said that uh, people want to see their team win. 
because they identify so much with their teams, if people had a better um, idea or concept of themselves, of self-confidence, maybe they wouldn't have to be so competitive. They wouldn't have to feel like, well, I've got to go out and prove that I can beat this person because I know that it's really not necessary for me to beat anybody. I'm whole and perfect the way I am. So maybe we need more study in uh, our schools in meditation and in metaphysics there before we can really get to the uh, cooperative consciousness we're pointed towards in the fourth density. Yeah, I think so. Okay, well, shall we take on Jeremy's question from Bring Forth? Yeah, sure. Okay, Jeremy says or asks... Confederation contacts always emphasize the importance of meditation, but my understanding is that Ra, at least, did not provide any real guidance on how we should meditate. This gives us a lot of room to do many different activities under this broad rubric of meditation. Where do you think the boundaries are? How do we recognize when we're doing meditative work as opposed to just thinking or just being still? Austin, how about you? What do you think? Well, to me, the focus of Jeremy's question is in the words doing meditative work as opposed to just thinking or being still. Um, I'd phrase the question, uh, what is the difference between contemplating and thinking? Obviously, contemplation involves thinking, but what I think makes it contemplation is the focus of your thoughts. It is one thing to jump from thought to thought, to think about the bills you have to pay one second, Uh, to think about what's for dinner tonight, to wonder if the moon is made of cheese, uh, then what's that noise over there? It's probably a raccoon, and I can't wait for the next season of Game of Thrones to start. (laughs) So uh, sitting and going through thoughts like that certainly isn't contemplation or meditation, I think. Uh, But to focus on a particular subject, to keep your mind within a certain groove, and allow inspiration to move your thoughts within that groove, I think that that is contemplation. We could contemplate pretty much anything. You could work through all the possibilities and ramifications of the moon being made of cheese. Uh, But then the subject matter, then, I think, is what hones contemplation to being spiritual in nature, examining how interconnected everything in the world really is, uh, how amazing all the odd coincidences are that put you where you are today, considering the idea that we're all this, an aspect of the same great consciousness. Uh, you could say that you're just thinking about those things, but I know that when I think about them, I'm placed in another mindset completely, and I'm filled with inspiration and a certain type of energy, appreciation for my experiences in life. And that is how I think I am contemplating rather than just thinking. But then what about when he says just being still? I think that's a tougher one. Uh, There is a difference between silent meditation and contemplation, and I think they both serve a particular purpose. It's hard to convince somebody who isn't familiar with meditation that sitting silently and allowing their thoughts to pass them by and attempting to keep their head clear is anything more than just uh, being bored while you sit. Uh, I don't think there's really much of a difference between silent meditation and just being still. But that stillness to me offers a balance to the constant movement of our lives, and not just physical movement, but mental movement. I think that uh, contemplation is still a sort of movement. But to just sit and be, and 
pretending you're a tree or a flower, uh, no mind to burden us with attempting to grasp our surroundings, no need to consider the past or the future, no responsibilities, nothing calling us to action. It can be hard for a lot of people to reach that point where they can actually experience this type of silence, but it is attainable. And when I uh, plan for silent meditation, I do my best to set everything in my life aside for that time. And only the only thing I have to do is be. Every other single thing that makes up the illusion of life is allowed to fall away, and I am just existing, just pure and simple existence. And I do think it takes some time and practice to feel like you're doing anything more than just being still, but the practical benefits of meditation, like physical benefits, they come pretty quickly, and then the spiritual benefit benefits uh, will come with some practice, and you will get to that point where you feel like things really are falling away and you are allowing yourself to just be. And I think that doing that balances the motion we have in our lives. So, uh, back to you, Jim. Good job, Austin. Uh, and I'll pass the ball over to Gary. <laughs> uh, I thought that was an excellent answer. And and I think... Um, <laughs> When Jim passed the ball back to me, it occurred to me that we're one example of cooperative sports here, in a way. <laughs> no one told me I'd be playing sports today. This <laughs> um, yeah, Austin's uh, answer was excellent, especially regarding uh, contemplation. And so much hinges on um, the sustained intended focus, but also the the topic of the focus, the material upon which the focus is trained. And that brought to mind uh, Ra's statement in 5211, where they say, let us remember we are all one. This is the great learning teaching. In this unity lies love. This is a great learning teaching. And they go on to describe the fundamental teachings of all planes of existence, unity, love, light, and joy. Then they say, um, at some point, the entity is so smoothly activated and balanced by these central thoughts that the techniques like meditation and service become important. And uh, I think contemplation um, on these central thoughts is uh, what Ra was describing and what Austin was talking about when he said, when I think about these, this category of thought, you're, he's put into a different mindset and uh, uplifted even and um, I don't know if you said this specifically, but when uh, I contemplate on these thoughts, I think sometimes I can sense that there's deeper gears beginning to turn within me. And um, but even if I don't sense that, I trust that um, by thinking on these central thoughts, there's an activation within uh, in the subconscious and the deeper self and the soul identity. It's like hitting those chords with which the universe resonates and um, <clears throat> maybe dormant energies or maybe unconscious energies begin to move and to begin to work in concert with the conscious mind that has uh, picked up the baton, if you will, and begun its ju conscious journey of seeking the truth, <clears throat> which has thus far been hidden or out of view from it. So um, how do we recognize we're doing meditative work as opposed to just thinking of being still um quo in the past my impression 
And this is a fuzzy and it's an old memory and it may be inaccurate. But my impression was that Quo always began with intention and didn't progress too much beyond intention. They just placed importance there and said it, it's the intention. Just um, if you're sitting down with the intention to meditate, um, regardless of how you uh, feel you have, how well you have done, um, then that is most significant because you're sending a signal to your deeper self that you want to cooperate, you want to gain deeper understanding, you want to engage the gears of spiritual evolution, and so forth. Um, and I, I think that is absolutely at the base of it, that is fundamental, and that never becomes unimportant. <clears throat> um, however, I felt that that was somewhat of an incomplete um, attitude because to me that's like it's as if that's like saying um so you want to be an artist well um approach the canvas uh, get some paintbrushes and some colors and just work on one's intention uh, of course intention underlies every effort and needs to be nurtured and developed um, but there's a lot to be said for learning the craft for um, discipline, for becoming better, uh, which isn't a suggestion to judge oneself for meditating. Uh, I think we should never uh, attempt to judge or rate our performance per se. Um, But there are deepening degrees of skill in that regard that that do become important once, like Ra said in 5211, the entity is... uh, smoothly activated by the central thoughts of unity, love, light, and joy. And um, so far as how do we recognize when we're meditating, uh, I would offer a disclaimer to you, Jeremy, that um, I've been practicing meditation for some years now, but not consistently enough to make progress, at least the progress that uh, I desire. Um, Personally, I'm hoping that will change soon with new life circumstances. But... um, couple ideas for markers of progress in meditation or markers of meditating itself. Uh, Two concepts, the first of which is clarity and awareness. I think um, the more that you're able to be present in the moment with the mind focused and concentrated, the greater um, clarity and awareness you will begin to actually experience um, in terms of how to understand that clarity. Try visualizing um, smog-filled air uh, versus a clean and clear, crisp fall, blue sky, sunny day. Um, there, I think that's a nice image or visual for what the interior environment can come uh, can become when focusing uh, sufficiently, it can clear and one can gain a sense that there's a great inner spacious awareness that is not obstructed, you might say, by a tangle of distractions and thoughts and expectations and desires and regrets and thoughts on past and uh, future, like Austin was saying. And in addition to clarity, uh, another marker is stability or stabilization of attention. Um, There's less movement of the attention. You might say less uh, fluctuation or disturbance or distraction. The 
attention um, naturally and consistently and effortlessly eventually even rests in one place and one point without needing to run off with another thought. It can see a thought rise and fall, but it stays right there in the present. Um, not because you're forcing it to, but through consistent discipline over time, you have essentially trained or le- yourself or learned how to keep the attention in one place. And eventually, uh, I think that is a much more natural state to us. The, the attention learns how to be there and one doesn't need to hold it uh, per se. And um, a great book that helped me understand these things is that I would recommend is uh, Wake Up to Your Life, colon, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention by Ken McLeod. And... And I think I will stop there and, and bounce the ball back to you, Jim. <laughs> good job. You guys did a really good job. Well, um, I don't know how much there is left to say. Don always used to say that he felt he was always in a state of meditation. And I think what he was talking about is this, uh, the beingness that we all have and from which we, we, we use this as our foundation. And we do what we do because first we be and we, we know that we are. That we exist, and I think that uh, he was able to tune into his beingness much more than most people. Even when, say, he was uh, driving his car and going to work, or say, even flying the the jets for Eastern Airlines, um, I think that there's a, a way of maintaining that sense of your inner self that you get when you have a, a really good meditation. When you do have that ability to focus uh, one pointedly for a while, and it seems then after the meditation that uh, sense of um, expanded self, of uh, sure self, of uh, calm and peaceful and one-pointed self can go with you for a while. And it, uh, it changes the way you look at things. Things uh, look much more harmonious. They look much more um, happy and helpful in the, the way that they ought to be. So I can, I can understand how he would say something like that. And I think that... Uh, he probably had a whole lot more experiences with meditation than he ever shared with anybody. He wasn't one for sharing uh, really what was going on. But I think just looking at him as he sat around the house and drawing those uh, mysterious um, pictures in the air with his fingers, uh, he, he would never tell Carl and me why he was drawing. But he would either, usually lying on the couch, he would look up and he would be drawing in the air. And he always had this sense of, um, you could, you could feel his uh, serenity about him, that he was totally centered all the time and just enjoying being alive, although he wasn't saying a lot about it. So I, I think that, like Gary said, it is the intention that really determines whether or not we're contemplating or meditating or not. And sometimes, even though we intend to uh, to try to meditate, sometimes there's uh, the thoughts that want to try to intrude and take our center away and run off with it and I don't know, I imagine some of you have also had the experience you're, you're meditating and all of a sudden there's a conversation going on and you're one of the people talking. <laughs> and you, you ask yourself, how did that happen? Uh, you know, I don't want to be talking. But um, life is mysterious. That's about all I have to say about meditation and intention. Final thoughts before we uh, bring this episode to a close. Uh, just that you brought up a good point, Jim, about... Um, 
how Don felt he was meditating in, in everything he did. And I think ideally meditation is a, a way of life. It's not, it doesn't just happen within the confines of um, those 15 or 30 minutes that you um, sat on the chair in a lotus position. Uh, however, I think that meditation, at least for me, maybe it's different for other people, meditation is learned in a, a formal sort of discipline. I think that's really important. And then it uh, gradually, one finds that it is expanding out into every corner of one's life until with consistent discipline and practice, one uh, enters into what might be called the meditative uh, state of mind in, or brings that meditative state of mind into anything and everything that they do. And that's all for me today. Thanks, Jeremy. Okay, final thoughts, Austin? Nope, I think I'm done. Okay, well, I think we're all done then. And it's been a great show. I enjoyed uh, exchanging ideas with you guys, as always. Indeed. Yeah, it's always fun. You've been listening to LL Research's weekly podcast, In the Now. If you've enjoyed the show, please visit our websites, llresearch.org and bringforth.org. Thanks so much for listening, and a special thank you to those who submitted questions. If you'd like to send us a question for use before the next show, Please read the instructions on our page at www.llresearch.org forward slash podcast. We want you all to know that we love you very much and we thank you for being with us. And we, uh, we think about you during the week as we're thinking about what we want to do for our next In The Now podcast. So you are on our minds, you're in our hearts, and I hope that we are in yours as well. Have a wonderful week. And we will see you in two weeks. Cheerio.